We've moved far beyond COVID at this point. In the minds of the American consciousness, we've moved beyond COVID. Like, for the average American, COVID doesn't matter. COVID is still around, but people don't care about it, right? They don't think about it. The media doesn't even cover it. And even if they do, more and more of the normal crowd uh, has a negative reaction to that sort of coverage at all. People don't want to think about COVID. Is negative feelings. They, they remember it with, you know, not such fond opinions. So anyone that reminds them of that, whether it be to say, look at uh, how, how great my COVID policy was, or look at how my COVID policy was, people just remember, oh, COVID was that's something important to make note of here. So now that you have no COVID equation and Trump has the almost Joe Biden style approach to the issue of the economy where he can just say, remember when you had real negative wages for like a year and a half? Look at how bad things are. Look at how bad the economy is. He can just keep hammering that over and over again in the same way that Joe Biden could do that with Trump's COVID economy. Ultimately, Joe Biden's chances were going to be bad regardless at a time when the Democrats party is actually following through on some of the more popular agenda items given how the economy takes a while to recover and an even longer time frame for people to recognize that recovery it was always going to be difficult for a one-term president to take advantage of the agenda items that actually help the economy recover because right now the reality is the economy is recovering there's a lot of back and forth on twitter on this people go oh why are you talking about graphs and stats why are you talking about this and that people are still suffering it's like, yeah, people were suffering in 2019. People were suffering in 2016. People continue suffering. The economy wasn't great across the board. But if you're looking at the feelings that people have on the economy, that takes a while. That takes a while for people to look at and go, you know what? Actually, my situation is much better. It take years for people to forget that it used to cost like $5 2019, cost like 8 or $9. Wages have not increased that much. No amount of grass will make people ignore that. I think it's out of touch to suggest that the economy is doing okay. No, the economy is objectively doing okay in comparison to how it was in 2019. That's the problem. In 2019, the economy wasn't doing okay either. If you're comparing it to 2019 versus now, it's doing the same. The issue, however, is that in 2019, it wasn't good either. That's why you're a left is that's why you literally wanted bernie sanders to be president right do you understand that's the issue i think it's out of touch absolutely no it's not this is not an out of touch take you guys are wrong if you think that the economy is like doing worse overall than 2019 you're making a stupid argument you're making the incorrect argument the correct argument is to say the economy doing poorly is the standard so going back to 2019 doesn't change that reality do you get it and the reason why you are still feeling like it's doing even worse than 2019 is because it takes a while for you to start recognizing that it's getting better it takes a long time let's look at this uh matt brunick piece because matt brunick is like the the guy from the people's policy project he's the guy he's the leftist numbers guy right let's read this article he says i've been closely monitoring the recent discourse on the goodness of the economy one two and i think i've fully mapped it out and understand why it keeps breaking down what is being presented as an argument about one question is actually about an argument about three different questions one is the economy good two did joe biden do a good job with the economy given political constraints and three why do people say the economy is bad when asked by survey takers each of these questions is interesting when analyzed separately but when you mush them together without realizing you are doing that you end up in a rhetorical quagmire that causes frustration and confusion see like this is what i mean look 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 you just said biden added double the amount of jobs he was projected to add last month what was unemployment at in 2016 the stock market doing well or unemployment numbers looking the way they do or our gdp does not reflect the opinions of the broadest majority of workers in the united states of america at all the real economic issues that they are experiencing overall it doesn't matter you got hell of 
people doing Uber and like multiple jobs. Those numbers are to massage the narrative ultimately, but it completely loses sight of the way people feel about the situation. And a lot of a lot of like New York Times adjacent article heads fail to recognize that for some reason. And I think a lot of people even in this community are making the analysis from the opposite direction when they make the analysis from the opposite direction to the New York Times guys by looking at 2019 and looking at now and going, no, it is actually much, much worse. You are forgetting as far as economic growth or your wages going up or, or unemployment numbers, like even when unemployment is down, it doesn't matter. You're still sucks. And that's because the system is broken fundamentally. I think a lot of people forget that reality for some reason. Let's get back to this. Each of these questions is interesting when analyzed separately, but when you mush them together without realizing you are doing that, you end up in a rhetorical quagmire that causes frustration and confusion. My interest in the debate is mostly on the question of number one, i.e. whether the economy is good. When I was introduced to this discourse, this seemed to be what people were arguing about with the consensus sentiment from liberal thought leaders being that the economy is not only good, but it's extremely good, and that any viewpoint to the contrary is bad faith, borderline insane, or factually bankrupt. I found this peculiar because whether the economy is good or bad is, at minimum, a highly contestable question that turns as much on your ideological views about what makes an economy good as it does on various factual indicators. If we take a snapshot of the current economy and ask whether it is good or bad, certainly anyone with a conventional leftist views on the economics would say that it's bad. The welfare state is bad, unionization is low, public ownership is low, inequality is high. My point precisely. The negative assessment is not based on some pie-in-the-sky baseline for a good economy either. We hugely trail many of our developed nation peers on those metrics, nor is this baseline being opportunistically selected. The left spent five years lining up behind a Bernie Sanders campaign that had it at its core premise that an economy that looks like what we have right now is really awful. This is exactly what my framework is as well, just like Matt Brunix is saying here. My baseline is that 2016 sucked dog for many workers and you have blinders on or i guess these like rose colored glasses on when you look back at 2016 thinking that it's much better but it's not if we look only at the recent changes in the economy what we see is a very mixed bag on the one hand the recovery from the covid recession has increased employment and compressed the wage schedule both good things this is true on the other hand the rollback of the covid welfare state has seen free school meals eliminated cash benefits of the poorest kids eliminated 10 million, 10 million people kicked off medicaid and the return of our completely dysfunctional unemployment benefit system bad things the question of how exactly to combine these conflicting developments Developments to generate a net assessment of recent changes presents the usual incommensurability problems and therefore heated debate. My simple attempt to net this all out by looking at recent developments in disposable income is presented in a graph below. This disposable income concept includes labor market and welfare state developments in it, but it does not fully settle the debate either. Here's the percent of individuals whose real disposable income increased or decreased from prior years. Since 2020 onwards, you have what, 55% or, or almost 60% of individuals whose real disposable income has decreased. This, by the way, is reflected in the K-shaped recovery that you saw in the midst of COVID, even with all of the money pumps that people got in the form of unemployment insurance and many other ways of taking off some of the financial burdens like the freeze on student loan debt. Law, so this is the political version of girl math. You think that factoring in the American welfare state is girl math? Every other OECD nation, and you look at their confidence in the government, you look at their social mobility, all factors that you have to consider, like neoliberal economists consider when looking at the American economy. Even the right-wing or conservative or capitalist, pro-capitalist guys, they're not even doing girl math. They just have a different metric of success, one that actually makes it seem like the situation is fine, no matter how dire it seems for many others. I think it's perfectly valid to make this assessment off of, you know, putting in a labor market, welfare state developments, and adding in uh, social safety nets and, like, what goes away from that social safety net because ultimately that sh 
does factor into your calculation in the real world, just like student loan debt relief, or rather a pause, a payment pause factors into your disposable income. If you were paying $200, $300 a month to your student loan refinancer or whatever, and you no longer had to pay that for two years, you all of a sudden have 200 extra dollars in your pocket to spend on other as I have proliferated this argument over the past few weeks, what I have found that people respond by changing the subject questions two and three. So they acknowledge that obviously social Democrats must think the current economy is bad and must think that these recent welfare cuts were bad, but then say that these things are not Biden's fault or that survey respondents who say the economy is bad are doing so for other reasons. These latter two questions are of much less interest to me in large part because there's no real good way to argue about them. These two questions, the did Joe Biden do a good job of the economy given political constraints and why do people say the economy is bad when asked by survey takers? I've given an answer for both. Both of these before Joe Biden has done a decent job with the economy given political constraints. This much is true, but it's not enough because what needs to happen is a seismic shift. That's precisely the reason why a lot of people wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders and a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters who then became like Elizabeth Warren supporters or whatever don't recognize that and have become like Democratic Party loyalists for some weird reason without ever really making an internal assessment of what changed in their mentality. If you were an advocate for social democratic principles in 2016, you came to the situation with the assessment that like the current metrics of success that we had at the time were not actually showcasing the situation on the ground. But this is a major answer to question number three. Why do people say their perspective is that the economy is because if things cost more and you are not getting as much government assistance and now you have to pay for more things and on top of that, your wages have increased, but not by a lot or at least increased recently, but was decreasing dramatically in comparison to the inflation for like two f years out of the four, then yeah, no sh of course, you could be like, no, I remember when it sucked really bad and now it sucks a little bit less. Looking at it and going, people don't understand that like prices don't go down. They always go up. That's inflation. If prices went down, that would be deflation. We would be in a recession. That's significantly worse or whatever is also a stupid assessment on the matter. Yeah, it plays a role in explaining why people are always upset about the economy, okay? But it doesn't matter. The genius of a government with so many veto points is that it's impossible to assign blame or credit to anyone for almost anything because no single person or government body is sufficient cause of most government actions. In practice, what this means is that partisans credit the president for everything that passes even though he cannot unilaterally pass anything, but do not blame him for anything that fails to pass because, after all, he cannot unilaterally pass anything. As to what motivates survey response, it's clear enough that a lot of survey responding is expressive in the sense that people don't attempt to answer the question that is presented to them but instead consciously or subconsciously use the question as a proxy for things like do you like the president or how do you feel about the state of the country or similar the funniest example of this i've seen that shortly after biden was elected the percentage the percent of democratic survey respondents that they felt financially comfortable buying a new refrigerator massively shot up a couple of years ago it became popular to dismiss polling that showed people like progressive ideas by saying it was unreliable but weirdly those talking points that position presented as the alternative other polling that worded questions about these ideas differently in order to generate more negative responses. Now it seems people are finally coming around to the more natural conclusion that topical polling is itself meaningless, not just when it shows support for public health insurance. His idea is that, you know, people are too stupid to understand, or not even too stupid, but people don't think about it from an educated perspective of like whether the economy is better off or not and it's just vibes based and the vibes are not even about like paying for a hamburger but you can certainly point to paying for hamburger as a reason as a problem don't ever let people tell you that fast food prices are not an important indicator of how the economy is doing even economists like neoliberal economists look at fast food prices as a good indicator of how the economy is doing so the idea that like people act like that's oh so silly those i've 
Yeah, no. The idea that fast food prices are not important or valid is silly. For the record, I love this Matt Bruning conversation because this is exactly the same question I've asked as well to those who have made this point. You pretend to argue about question one and then you lose on question one, you pivot to question three. I can't tell if that's because you are dishonest or stupid, he says. I mean, just objectively, if you were to describe a snapshot of the current U.S. economy to me, I'd tell you it's bad. Well, for state unions, public ownership, inequality, poverty are all way off where they ought to be. It's sad because Matt's a smart guy, but he's also a troll. The U.S. economy is bad because of stuff that's been true for decades is obviously not a serious answer in an argument over why people are so much more miserable today than in 2019 when conditions were similar or worse. Matt, you're literally just trolling. Is the economy uh, good as compared to all possible economies over any period of time is an absurd question no one is asking, except as a device to arrive at the answer. No, it's not how real people think about this. That's Analyzing is the economy good by applying your own framework for analyzing the economy. In my case, a social democratic framework is not absurd. And it apparently is so destructive to what you are doing that you pretend I'm doing something totally different. Based on your framework for what makes an economy good, do you think that the economy is good? Question mark. Don't pivot to how people are lying to survey takers and how Biden did the best he can. I want an applying of Stancil's ideology on the economy. To which Will says, yes. Was that not clear the first 3,000 times? To which Matt responds, so you've repudiated your prior belief that the economy needs big structural change to be good which is a great question to ask someone who defended elizabeth warren why were you an elizabeth warren supporter then it makes no sense why didn't you support joe biden unconditionally from the jump there's no need to vote for elizabeth warren there's no need to vote for bernie sanders if you think that you know the economy is good and it will continue being good under democratic leadership why would you ever push for a change also biden and trump's economies are essentially identical and they're both good by stancil's ideology which i must assume is fiscally conservative neoliberal liberalism so it then shouldn't matter who is president or in congress as far as the economy goes yes this is what i was getting at in the last week stancil has decided that he can say 2023 looks good a lot like 2019 to prove that the economy was good but actually stancil's position in 2019 is that the economy was bad and we need big structural change to make it good matt basing your entire rebuttal around imputations of my views from the fact that i like elizabeth warren is not doing a good job of proving that you're not a bernie dead ender whose brain was melted by your guy losing two consecutive primaries which is a ridiculous counter because Elizabeth Warren lost even harder than Bernie Sanders. But it also kind of shows the position that Will has, which is the position that a lot of Elizabeth Warren defenders had. They don't really care if the Democratic Party continues winning. They don't really care if no matter who's at helm. Aesthetically, they want to deviate away sometimes, but ultimately they're fine. I make the same point in my piece about every Bernie supporter as well. The premise of both campaigns circa 2019 was that an economy that looks like what we had in 2019, which is similar to what we have now, is awful. And they were right. Didn't you actually believe the 2019 economy was bad? Like, isn't that the reason you supported Warren, same reason why I supported Bernie, or did you think that it was good and disagree with Warren and Bernie on that point, but supported them for other reasons, foreign policy? I don't know. No, I didn't think the 2019 economy was particularly bad. It's way better, though. Do you think the economy today is better than it was here? Anything other than the yes is a lie. Also, arguing that the economy is rigged as underlying issues and the same as saying it was bad is childish. I don't understand how neoliberal pundits are this dumb and have hundreds of thousands of followers. Wait, what do you mean? Their goal is to contextualize what you are experiencing in a way that makes you feel like you're smart. Everybody does this to a certain degree. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say that our economy sucks in general under Biden? It was just less sucky than before. On metrics that capitalists look at, yes, Joe Biden has seemingly under his watchful reign, if you look at unemployment as like a sole factor, if you look at only things like that, then yeah, Joe Biden is killing it, dude. And you guys are peasants for not recognizing it. Many people don't look at it from those metrics, understandably, because they look at the money that they have in their pocket at the end of a month and from that front it takes a while to even assume or recognize the recovery it takes a long 
time. We often talk about how Democrats will come in and actually apply neoliberal principles or not neoliberal principles, but like do a little bit of social safety nets and like balance the budget or whatever. Republicans will come back in and take advantage of that every single time. Democrats come in and engage in the ratcheting effect, keep a lot of the social provisions in place or social regressions in place, refuse to push on that front, fix up the economy a little bit, sometimes even make permanent a lot of the awful policy measures of like reducing the tax burden of the top earners in this country. It takes a while for people to recognize the recovery of the Democratic Party. Session over. And if so, what did we learn from it? And why is there still a gap between vibes and hard data? If you looked at just hard data, you'd think that the economy is booming. Retail sales are up, GDP is flying, and the labor market is strong. But the vibes are sending a different signal. Confused one in which people think their financial situation is good but the economy is getting worse at the same time can you be generally happy with your personal financial position and still think the economy is going in the tank for a broad section of americans apparently so you are never going to convince mother that the economy is doing wonderful healthcare costs are unimaginably high which is part of what factors into your real wages going up you don't actually see it in your pocket rent is out of control healthcare is out of control grocery prices are certainly higher but that's not the major consideration here a lot of people hyper focus on the grocery prices and go oh dude like this is 90 dollars now like oh look at my grocery bag it's so expensive no the real issue that there's no diversity for like you have to be stuck with these big purchases big ticket items okay health insurance is unimaginably expensive when your company is paying for that percentage of your health insurance being unimaginably expensive it looks like your real wages have gone up because that's a part of your benefits package but you didn't see that in your pocket buddy what the are you replacing groceries with there are cheaper alternatives there's significantly more cheaper alternatives to food items that you're purchasing and the price increase the inflation increase on groceries and food items is marginal in comparison to what i'm talking about it's still high but it is marginal in comparison to what i'm talking about and the real reason why people don't understand like well real wages are going up is because yeah a part of your compensation is your benefits and your benefits package directly seemingly goes up because healthcare prices are higher insurance prices are higher and your company is paying for that so when your company's paying for that insurance price you don't even think about that because that never comes into your pocket you never think about that that's a major flaw in our analysis but think about all the amazing benefits well the irony is those benefits are not changing they're not different than the year prior they're the same they're still dog the problem is it's just going up because it is an inelastic demand good it's an inelastic demand service you'll die without healthcare so you have to have it they can get away with being the middleman in the absence of any kind of regulatory body doing their job and get away with being the middleman that just keeps inflating your costs over and over and over again everything's crazy i'm not talking about inflation i understand inflation i understand stuff gets more expensive over time i'm not talking about that i'm talking about every product and every service just having the highest possible price so that company can make the most money there's just no concept of value anymore there's no concept of whether the product is actually worth any of that massive price you're asking for it doesn't it's not supposed to work like this it can't be that every product is expensive some products are better than others. It used to be if you buy a really fancy sandwich, that, that sandwich is more expensive. Now every sandwich is expensive. It doesn't make any sense. I saw an Instagram ad earlier. It was for this like heated pillow. And I was like, oh, that's cute. Maybe I'll get that for my wife for Christmas. I looked it up, a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds for the heated pillow. What are you on? 
that's not worth that. Like, who do you think you are? Are you not a bit embarrassed doing this? You know? And it, it, people will come along with the annoying economic argument they always make, which is like, well, things are worth what people are willing to pay for them. But that doesn't work when everything is expensive. Because you have to buy some things. No customer is voluntarily choosing or opting into these crazy prices. Just everything's at the max. But there, there's no concept of value, you know? The first part of what he said was correct, which is that companies always want to improve their profit margins. So yes, if people have more money to spend, then companies raise their prices, even though they don't have to. This concept is called greedflation. In our textbooks, it is taught that inflation will happen for a number of different reasons, but one of them is when the manufacturing price point goes up, whether because a commodity necessary for production and its value goes up or its price goes up due to scarcity or due to like externalities, right? Scarcity that is uh, real scarcity. I say scarcity. Anyway, the reality of the matter is prices don't necessarily have to go up because people are buying more prices can simply just go up especially when we have a tremendous amount of corporate consolidation so when you have a lot of corporate consolidation there isn't any real competition in the marketplace and the marketplace falls in line in every vector this is a concept called price leadership technically different than price fixing price fixing is when the three ceos that own everything get together and smoke cigars in a shadowy deal and they say we're going to raise the prices for eggs you see that's illegal and wrong and very bad that's called price fixing but if there's an oligopoly a couple different ceos a couple different corporations that own i don't know agricultural production or an entire sector let's say in in food maybe oreos and cookies right it's not done in a shadowy back room but like oreo increases his prices and engages in shrinkflation and then turns around and actually like lowers the amount of oreos you get when you purchase it the other competing brands see that and they also change their prices across the board this can be done much easily when there's only three brands that own all the cookies that's called price leadership one example of which you can see directly in your own real-time real-world experiences airplanes and airliners i'll give you an example of price leadership in that situation one commercial airliner company decides to make you pay for your baggage then all the other companies follow suit when they do that that's called price leadership that's how it works it's not done in a shadowy deal in the same way that like the opec cartel works opec plus does this they get together and they limit the supply of oil knowing full well that it will increase the price this on the other hand is perfectly valid perfectly legal and very easy to do only one or two or or three or four maximum companies like major players in a marketplace that dominate the damn near entirety of said marketplace never forget price leadership is not price fixing don't ever say that however that is what greedflation is that is what it's caused by we had a lot of supply chain issues in the united states of america where a lot of people lost the opportunity to spend their money on like gas, for example, because they didn't really go anywhere. And they were they had more disposable income as a consequence of like a lot of the, the welfare state happening to kick in because America is the consumer engine of the world. So we had to give money to Americans to sit at home. And the more you sat at home, the more money you had because you were spending less. In that time frame, even after the supply chain issues were fixed, auto dealerships, for example, learned a very valuable lesson. People have more money to buy cars. People have more money to buy cars and it doesn't even 
even matter if there are less cars because now we have less inventory, but we can make more money with less inventory by simply raising the prices. They didn't do this in 2022, for example, where the auto dealership industry made gangbusters with their profits. They didn't do that because they had to, because something was more expensive in the manufacturing process or anything. Their markups existed. They didn't actually refresh their inventories or fill their inventories because people were willing to pay. Did you clarify to chatters that price leadership works because for a certain sector, a single firm has the majority of the market share, e.g. Nestle, Coca-Cola Corporation, so smaller firms wouldn't get a windfall from keeping their prices low as they cannot ramp up production. They are directly incentivized to raise their prices along with the leader. This works with no communication between the firms. Yes. And the more corporate consolidation occurs, the more the top industry leaders actually literally do that. They don't even compete with one another. They just follow suit. They follow the leader. Whoever has the courage to engage in shrinkflation. Here, I'll give you another example. A lot of people think like the economy operates with these super reasonable goddamn boundaries. Why the f*** did everybody gut the tech sector? Why did so many tech companies, regardless of the fake money that they were getting, did they gut the tech sector because of the interest rates going up? That certainly had an impact on the tech sector. But the major reason why so many layoffs occurred was because they were just following other companies that were laying off. So the expectation from their shareholders was lay off people, find people to lay off immediately. Obviously, Meta had good reason to, I guess, lay off certain parts of their company, but plenty of places didn't. Twitter is another good reason. Twitter is another company that like didn't need to gut their entire workplace and and work the H1B visa recipients to the goddamn core and put the website on its uh on a on a skeleton. They did not do this due to rational acts. These are not rational actors. They're operating on radical principles. What are you talking about? They absolutely needed to lay off their employees, Lamont. All the advertisers pulled out. What are you talking about? Advertisers pulled out after. Elon Musk came in and the first thing he did was literally rip the moderation cord off. Take Twitter off of its wheels. What the you talking about that came before advertisers went away ultimately this is not like a rational situation this is a noam chomsky bit but like if we had a supply and demand structure and we had such a principle as the rational actor okay because the supply demand only works if you know all parties are rational in their in their decisions then there would be no need for a multi-billion dollar industry that does public relations and marketing the entire purpose behind public relations and marketing is to ensure that you do not make rational decisions that's how it works let's take a look at box.com why buying a house in the u.s is so hard right now the story goes like this money by itself loses value over time. That's inflation. But if you own your home in the U.S., you own an asset that is appreciating in value. Buying it probably required you to save a bunch of money and also borrow a lot of money, which you need to pay back over time, as opposed to renting your home, which basically just requires rent. But now you own it. It could be collateral if you ever need money, like to start a business or to send your kids to college. One day you might sell it for more than you bought it, but also stability, peace of mind. So that you may maintain your place in society. You get it. If we look at the middle 60% of the U.S. population in terms of wealth, the middle class, the bulk of the wealth held by that group is made up of the homes they live in. It's a big part of why we think of homeownership as the ticket. Bro, this is bar for bar what I say all the goddamn time. A big part of the reason why housing cannot get realistically solved under democratic organization is due to this reality that Americans, it's not just like BlackRock or whatever, purchasing up all the houses or whatever. It's because Americans associate their wealth, understandably, with their housing prices. And there's a 
ton of homeowners who literally are just so deeply tied to their home prices constantly going up because that's their only metric of like wealth. The value of their property goes up. The amount of money they could take out against that property goes up. One day they could sell it. That's how this works. Get to financial stability in the U.S., to securing and then building your own wealth. But the barriers to buying a home in the U.S. are getting higher. So how much higher exactly? And if you can't buy a home, what does that mean for your future? This guy said, you talking to a man in like a $3 million home? No, you're talking to a man in a $400,000 home that paid $3 million for his $400,000 home because of exactly the same housing market considerations that occurred that made it impossible to for for the average joe the house that i'm inside of is not a three million dollar chateau the only thing that makes it that way is because i'm in los angeles the heart of los angeles in west hollywood specifically it's virtually impossible to get a reasonable house because housing is not determined by like the actual size of it or the amount of labor that went into it or the commodities used to make the house it is determined by the scarcity of land so first let's go back to the median u.s housing price over the past 50 years up to 2022 now add income onto it. Yeah. Median wages have not kept pace with the increase in the cost of housing. This is Michelle Dickerson. She studies why it's become so hard for lower income and middle income people to become and remain middle class now. Let's go back about 50 years and look at a couple whose household income is exactly the national U.S. median at that time. In 1972 money, about $10,000. Imagine, right? They want to buy a house. The median U.S. home price at that time was about $29,000. That is about three times their income. Before the 1980s, it was possible for a young person to graduate from high school, find a job that was a full-time, 40-hour-a-week job with benefits. Housing in Los Angeles would mean 100000 is like what you need to make to survive in L.A.? $300,000. Can you imagine? For them to be able to buy a home. Now let's go 50 years forward and run those numbers for 2022. Median income, median home price. This house is more than six times this household's income. So that is what we're looking at. Yeah, do that not for the entire country. Do that for highly dense urban area and let those numbers blow your mind dog this is for the entirety of the united states of america dog you're factoring in places like arkansas at that point which is devastating by the way it's insane okay it's insane that like even in a place like bum nowhere arkansas and this is like prices are going up west virginia like psychotic places when we go back to that chart of income and housing prices again adjusted for inflation and compare this gap to this gap now as for the home prices themselves Let's zoom in to make that data easier to see, bring it up to date. You can see that the prices are starting to go down a little bit in 2023. But part of why they got so high in the first place is a lack of supply. This chart shows what's called the homeowner vacancy rate over about 70 years. It's the percent of homes in the U.S. that are actually for sale. And it's currently the lowest since we started collecting data. And that is partly the result of restrictive zoning laws. 
locally set rules all across the U.S. that regulate things like where homes can and can't be built, how many units a building can have in it, and how densely housing can be built. It leads to fewer homes getting built, which is definitely not the only reason or the biggest reason even. It's also what kind of housing you're building. They already mentioned what the problem is. Like one of the major issues is homes are seen as an investment vehicle, the only investment vehicle that has stability. Zoning laws are definitely a part of the problem. There are places where you see zoning laws get gutted. I'm in favor of gutting. You don't actually see the, the housing prices go down. The type of housing that's being built necessarily, Hassan is in favor of deregulation? Yeah, I've said that before. There are certain aspects of deregulation that is good. Like, for example, not being allowed to build buildings? Are you f kidding me? Are you out of your f mind? Zoning laws are dog when it comes to densely packed urban f areas. What are you talking about? It's ridiculous. But it should also maybe cause you a little bit of cynicism when you see your favorite like armchair urbanist account that you follow from the Netherlands advocating for the same position as like Larry Elder. I'm not even sure not just bikes not just bikes i don't know what his perspective is there are a lot of people like that i like not not just bikes i'm not i'm not even attacking him more housing but the housing that you're making it is like luxury condominiums that are not adjusted to like the average price point of the area and and what they can afford with the goal of like inevitably you know gentrifying the neighborhood and having more people show up at the neighborhood and making like a long-term plan of being able to maybe at some point fill it up you're not fixing the problem in the short term you're positioning yourself especially when there are plenty of tax benefits that come as a consequence of building and then not being able to fill your entire inventory that you've created you're not building to solve a problem and in some instances your building might even cause more problems than it set out to solve leads to fewer homes to buy and as for the homes that are for sale so that's what we're looking ends. at here this chart splits all homes on the market in the U.S. into tiers by price. So these are the lower cost homes and these are the higher cost homes. And it tracks over time what percentage of the market each tier represents. You can see that over the past few years, homes that cost less than $200,000 have made up less and less of what's available. And homes above half a million or even a million dollars are representing a greater and greater share of what's for sale. So housing in the U.S. is scarce and it's expensive. But we're actually missing a really important piece of the story here. Let's revisit the two parts of a home purchase. First, you pay some percentage of the cost of the home up front, maybe 5%, maybe 20%, the down payment. The rest of the money you will need to borrow. This is the mortgage. You'll pay that back in monthly payments. But the size of those payments can vary a lot depending on the interest rate of the loan. This chart shows the average interest rate of a common type of mortgage over the past 50 years. In the long term, it's mostly been going down. A lower mortgage interest rate means lower monthly payments. So while this chart of housing prices told a story of it getting harder to buy a house over time, the interest rate chart seems to tell a different story of very high and burdensome interest rates at one point and mostly lower and lower interest rates over time. So now the story is slightly more complicated. And if we look at them on the same timeline, they seem to kind of go in opposite directions until... Yeah, bro, that's literally just the exact same thing that we just talked about with why everything under a capitalist structure is dog year over year over year. No regulation, no improvements on the housing crisis because it's impossible to fix it. Why did these lines meet in 2008? Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Does anyone know what happened there? They don't. Let's just look at the recent well, not past. 2008. In 2020, a pandemic was happening and lots of people suddenly wanted to move and home prices started to shoot up. In 2022, as the U.S. government tried to slow down inflation, 
interest rates began to shoot up. And now they're both still pretty high. Not only that, because a lot of current homeowners have mortgage interest rates down in this range, the 3, 4, 5% zone, it means that since selling their home might mean having to buy a new one at an interest rate up here. Chat, I'm not going to lie. That's me right there. Like literally right there. You know, August of 2021. That's me for real, dog. Fewer people are selling their homes. It helps keep this, that homeowner vacancy rate, low. And it keeps home prices high. And by the way, all of these barriers to home buying are exacerbated for people of color who are more likely to be denied mortgage loans, regardless of income. The website Zillow looks at several of the factors we've talked about, including home prices, income, mortgage rates, and it calculates the monthly burden on the average new homeowner. According to them, that burden is close to the highest on record. There are lots more factors at play here. But overall, especially if you're a young person in the U.S., it is natural to feel discouraged by the housing market. And the question then becomes, can you still somehow have this without this? Can you find some kind of financial stability, even if you continue to rent where you live? Well, let's start with the obvious. This is not even always going up. Just for one example, this is the 2008 housing crisis, which was a disaster for home values. Now, they've obviously gone way back up, but we can look at other kinds of investment over that time period, too. Here's a common stock market index. It also went down and then up. Dog, 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 come on. You can't just, like, show this graph. And they go, come on, it's not so bad. Sometimes there's economic collapse. There's no way he's going to turn around and be like, you should just buy stocks, right? Like, there's no way. With the obvious, this is not even always going up. Just for one example, this is the 2008 housing crisis, which was a disaster for home value. Now, they've obviously gone way back up, but we can look at other kinds of investment over that time period, too. Here's a common stock market index. It also went down and then up. Now, that is an extremely imprecise comparison between two very different ways to invest. But you could also chart several kinds of investment this way, and they would all go up sometimes, down sometimes, hopefully up in the long term. But in the short term, you do not ever know what is coming next. A home is a pretty unique kind of purchase. It's a necessity that you buy at great cost. But if you look at it as a long-term investment, it's not actually that special. If you want the stable investment, you go out and invest in a nice, you know, government bond mutual fund. You don't have to worry about that. It is most likely, you know, going to go up. And if it doesn't go up this month, over time, it will. One thing charts like this show is that the conditions for buying a home change. Recently, they've been kind of bad. They might not always be. But if you're looking for long-term investments to grow your wealth, even if you rent your home, a house is not your only option. This is the worst video I've ever seen in my entire life. What the f is going on? I said it as a joke. He literally looked at a ginormous problem caused by the fact that we see homes as an investment vehicle. Openly admitted that it's like shelter, but it's also an investment. Like, okay, but if you don't have that shelter, the investment part doesn't matter. If it's unaffordable, then you don't have the shelter. What are you saying? And then they go, just, hey, at the end of the day, just think about it like it's an investment. And, you know, maybe you can't make this big ticket investment, but you can make other investments. It's like, dude, this is not about investments. Buying government bonds doesn't put a 
roof over your head. What are you saying? I can't wait to purchase mutual funds, okay? Which is going to inevitably, what, turn into a roof over my head? How does that work? That is, of course, if you even have the money. Many people don't. Because of, ironically, the problem that he just presented. The problem he presented is literally why people don't even have money. Because housing prices are going up and rents are skyrocketing. All of the problems stem from housing being seen as a investment vehicle. Went down and then up. Now that is an extremely imprecise comparison between two very different ways to invest. But you could also chart several kinds of investments this way and they would all go up sometimes, down sometimes, hopefully up in the long term. But in the short term, you do not ever know what is coming next. A home is a pretty unique kind of purchase. It's a necessity that you buy at great cost. But if you look at it as a long-term investment, it's not actually that special. How do you write that into your article and not recognize how f insane that sounds? Like, that's the whole point. That's the reason why we have this crisis to begin with, which is really funny because I know for a fact that, like, a Vox.com editor is not making enough money to, like, live comfortably in whatever big city they live in. Like, how do you write those words without ever assessing your own dire financial circumstance where you straight up see the issue at hand and just avoid it? Like, you just move past it like it was nothing. You, you just breeze past it. It's like, oh, it's just an investment vehicle and, you know, there's probably Probably better investments out there. Yeah, there are, dude. There are. Yes. Renting and investing right now is better than home ownership. But home ownership is not simply just an investment vehicle. And it should not be. It's shelter. You said it was shelter. We don't really do that in other circumstances in our life either, by the way. You don't go, yeah, your health insurance is, uh, you know, it's a necessity, but it's also, there are better investment vehicles out there. Yeah, I know you'll die if you don't eat food, but also there's better investment vehicles out there. W what the Invest in a nice, you know, government bond mutual fund. You don't have to worry about that. It is most likely, you know, going to go up. And if it doesn't go up this month, over time, it will. One thing charts like this show is that the conditions for buying a home change. Recently, they've been kind of bad. They might not always be. But if you're looking for long-term investments to grow your wealth, even if you rent your home, a house is not your only option. Where do people live, man? Where are people supposed to live? I don't understand it.